The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is a show that champions entrepreneurs, startups, early stage, in fact, all small businesses, and we're heard right around the world. You're a tremendous audience, and I want to thank you for making us the number one business radio show for entrepreneurs on this planet. Very important today that we have up-to-date news and advice, because it's a tough old world out there, and uh, we all need all the advantages that we can get. Now, we begin each week with a little segment called Bob's Thoughts for the Day. You know, quotes that get us to think. Today I've got some more quotes from Legends of Commerce that should all make us feel much happier about all the really dumb things that we manage to say. And these quotes show that even the gurus of business are not always right. In fact, they can often be way, way off track. Now, we all make mistakes. But the secret in business and about being successful and being a good business person is to learn from your mistakes and learn from the mistakes of others. That's why it's so important for everybody in business to read as many business books as we can so that we don't make the mistakes that successful people have already made and we can learn from them. You know, it was interesting. We I saw a survey a few years ago where the average small business person reads, I think, two business books a year, where the average Fortune CEO reads 27. So the average person who knows nothing (laughs) in general reads two, and yet the person who knows a hell of a lot reads 27. Do you reckon there's a correlation between those two? The more you read, the more business books you read, the more you learn, the more likely you are to be successful. Absolutely. Anyway, how about some of these classic blunders? When looking for new business books in 1957, the editor in charge of business books for Prentice Hall said, I have traveled the length and breadth of this country and talked with the absolute best people. And I can assure you that data processing is a fad that won't last out the year. Wow. I wonder when he was trotting around the country who the hell he was talking to. I got a suspicion that his expenses bill for alcohol might have been pretty exorbitant. Or how about this one from Western Union in 1876? This thing called the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is of absolutely 
no use to us. Well, since there's now 8 billion phones on the planet, I think that's got to go down as one of the great missed opportunities of all time. And even highly esteemed professors can be very, very wrong in their predictions. A Yale University management professor failed Fred Smith's thesis on an overnight reliable delivery service saying, in order to get better than a C, the idea must be feasible. Well, as we know, Fred Smith implemented his thesis and formed Federal Express. <laughs> God, wouldn't you be pissed off? You get a C and then you go and implement the thesis and build one of the most successful companies of all time. Just shows how out of touch university professors are. Now, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak created their first personal computer, they tried to get both Atari and HP interested in developing it with them. When they went to Atari, they offered to give the computer to Atari. All they wanted was a job and a salary. Well, guess what Atari said? No. (laughs) So, Jobs and Wozniak took it to HP. What do you reckon HP said? Hey, we don't need you. You haven't even finished college yet. Well, that could have been one of the great misjudgments of all time. And extreme, and very, very expensive when you look at the fact that um, just Apple alone's got about $150 billion in cash. And in fact, Wozniak and Jobs changed the future of technology in a lot of ways. And when you look at all the big tech companies now, doesn't matter Facebook or whatever it is, most of them were begun by college dropouts. Microsoft. That has to tell you something about how we educate our population. Now, over the past couple of months, we've spent a lot of time discussing social media and in particular, the huge growth in benefits that can be derived by businesses using mobile in particular. Another piece of information came across my desk today, and I don't have it right in front of me, but it says that um, within five years, people employed in mobile marketing will have increased from 50,000 to half a million. So there's half a million people involved now in mobile marketing. It The growth is phenomenal and small businesses in particular are saying what a boon it is to their business. But first today I want to discuss how you can use social media to make sales. You know, social media can help you get to know your prospects and establish relationships better than almost any other medium except being face-to-face, and very quickly and very easily. Social media allows salespeople to see what prospects are saying and what others are saying about them. So social media is just such a great way to research your prospect and initiate a sale. There are a host of stories about people who have used Twitter to find opportunities and then use LinkedIn to find the real buyers inside organisations 
And these, that combination of Twitter and LinkedIn have resulted in sales of hundreds of thousands of dollars in individual sales and hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars in total sales. Facebook and blog platforms, but they're also proven to be essential tools for sales. So how can you, small business, use social media to make sales? The first step is to join a community and create a persona for yourself. You need to build up a personal account, have conversations with people and become acquainted with the expectations of the community. You create a persona that is likeable and trustworthy so that you demonstrate that you're a trustworthy resource. If you come across as a jerk in your conversations, you won't get any business. Secondly, you need to determine the best way to contact and connect with those prospects. Social media is a smart selling tool only if your clients and prospects are using social media. I mean, if they're not using it, you need to go elsewhere and find out where they are. But if they are using Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of similar sites, then you need to determine which space is best for connecting and interacting with them. Most of the experts say that for business-to-consumer sales, Facebook is by far the best because it has such a huge following and the people who do follow Facebook use the site very regularly. So if you're selling business to business, then LinkedIn's the appropriate platform, particularly to connect with people at large corporations. I love LinkedIn. I use it regularly, and it is a fantastic tool for connecting with people that are essential for your future, and they can be any place on the planet. Twitter can also be used for all kinds of sales, but the primary use should be listening, not selling on Twitter. You need to use what you hear as leverage to pick up the phone and call. But don't limit yourself just to these three vehicles. There are a heap of others, and some are growing faster than others. You can find prospects any place online where a conversation relevant to what you do is taking place. Thirdly, you need to connect. Conduct a search on each social networking site or use a resource like socialmention.com to find people that are talking about your industry or using related keywords. Then just go and comment on their posts. You can retweet them. You can answer questions. You can share something they say. Just get involved with them. Then it becomes natural for you to follow them, but for them to follow you back. Now you've got people listening to what you're saying and to what you are urging them to do in a soft sort of a way. Now, once you connect, don't bombard them with pictures. You know, people get sick of being talked at. You've got to read their profiles, get to know them, and then identify their needs. 
don't act like a pushy salesperson. You know, people people are tired of that foot in the door, talk as fast as you can stuff. They want a friend that's got a solution to whatever their problem happens to be. Now, step number four is to build a relationship. Remember, you need to develop relationships rather than leads, as relationships will lead you into a lot of leads. So once you've developed a relationship, you can start advising them how your product or service may help them. They will talk to other people. You will then get more leads. The final step is to engage in a conversation. Now, if you just write them a message with a pitch and a link to your website, they're not going to take any notice. You will be very, very unlikely to attract them. Now, you can also create a Facebook group that's related to your product or service and then invite people to join. And as that group grows and as your expertise gets recognized, you will bring more and more customers to you. Once you've got this Facebook group, you can send targeted messages to people who are active within that group. And then you can join groups that your clients are members of. On LinkedIn, for example, by engaging in conversation and answering questions, you then get to showcase your expertise. And on Twitter, you can listen to your prospects' tweets and use them as trigger points to start a conversation. So by sharing good content with your social networks, your reputation will spread easy, try easily, (laughs) and increase your visibility substantially. And by listening to your customers' issues, you can provide better service leading to lifelong loyal customers. Now, so that's how you sell using social networks. You don't really sell you build friends and relationships. Now, this is the time of the year where students have left high school or they've completed college and are out looking for a career. Now, looking for a career means you're going to go to a host of interviews and uh, finding the right job's never easy. And if you're an employer, finding the right person to fill a particular vacancy is often pretty difficult and a pain in the ass. But interviews do tell you a lot about a person and how serious the candidate is about getting the job. Staffing services firm Office Team compiled some of the most outrageous questions that job candidates actually asked in interviews. These are real questions. They're not doctored or made to be funny or whatever. And you can tell a lot about a candidate's motivation by what they focus on in interviews. So if you're looking for a job and you really want to get it, you certainly want to avoid asking these questions. And of course, if you're the potential employer, if somebody asks you one of these questions, you'd probably have security remove them from the premises. So let me give you a few questions that interviewees actually did ask. First one, is it essential that I be at work every day? Hmm, 
How about, do you have another job in the company for my partner? Okay. How about, I like this one. This one makes sense. What are the women like who work here? <laughs> Can you imagine? God. How about this one? I'm preparing to be a musician. Can I have a week off every month so I can pursue my musical career? Sounds like you're going to be a long-term candidate, doesn't it? Um, I work better when I'm relaxed. So is it okay if I come to work in shorts? (laughs) And I love this one too. What job am I actually applying for here? Now, not one of the people who ask these questions actually got the job. But office team actually offered some pointers to questions that would reflect well on a candidate. These would include questions that make you sound like you're interested in that business. Questions like, while researching the firm, I learnt the company recently did such and such, whatever it is. How does this affect your current business strategy? So you sound like you've done your homework and you're interested in how whatever it was is going to affect their business. Um, can you possibly describe a typical work day for a person in this role? How about, can I work with the company to set KPIs that will enable me to maximise my learning experience and my performance, put my performance in this role? So I want to set targets for myself that I can achieve. That's a pretty good incentive to hire you, I reckon. And what skills and attributes are most important for success in this role? I think that's a great question as well. Now, these types of questions suggest that you're a candidate who has done his homework on the company and who's thinking about how they can fit in and contribute to the business. So there are a few tips for all of you that have left school and college and you're out there pounding the pavement looking for a job. I hope those tips might help you. Now, don't forget, this program is all about you, the entrepreneur, the small business person that's listening to the show, looking for tips on how to be more successful. This whole show is dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you have a question, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or email you directly. You're listening to the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We'll be back in just a moment with a great guy who doesn't advise people to buy stocks and shares but espouses the benefits of investing in wine. As a person who contributes to a small investment club that's always struggling over what stocks to buy, winning some, losing some, Alexander Westgarth tells us why we should really be thinking about investing in wine. That sounds like a wonderful idea, but I would probably end up drinking the profits. (laughs) I will be back in just a moment with my interview with Alexander. This is Bob Pritchard. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? 
Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people that have enjoyed great success and people that make a difference. We also talk to people who are doing things that are out of the ordinary. And, you know, my aim in these interviews is to find out what are the characteristics that these people have that makes them adventurous and successful and how each of us can learn from them. In his short time, he's been a camera operator, a producer, and an editor for short films and documentaries for both TV and movies. He's been a senior broker for nearly 10 years with an upmarket wine company in London. And of all things, he's built a violin. Now, that's pretty unusual. And he spends his life looking at the tops of people's heads because he's about seven feet tall. <laughs> Giant guy. What does Alexander do now? Well, he founded a company called Westgarth Wine Investment Brokers. They're located in both Los Angeles in London, and in London. And uh, now, I belong to this little investment club, and we get together every couple of weeks, and we're always struggling with what stocks to put our money into, and sometimes you lose. So I thought it was a pretty unique investment vehicle, and I wanted to know more about it. I always thought investing in wine was for the sort of, Beverly Hills Malibu crowd. However, the very sophisticated Westgarth brochure says that wine is not just for the privileged few. Wine investment is an ideal choice for everyday investors looking to diversify their portfolios. It says that if you choose wine, you'll benefit from a proven market that's stable, relatively detached from the mainstream, and what's more, it goes on to say, wine offers you a great hedge against inflation. And Jeremy Gaunt of Reuters says, fine wine is a better investment than equities and commodities. It weathers recession and the stock market crash, and it thrived in comparison with other investments. So that all sounded pretty good, so I kept reading. And I learned that if you bought a Lafitte Rothschild in 2001, for a mere $3,061 a bottle, by 2011, that bottle of wine was worth 
$4,104. That's a whopping $31,000 profit on a single loan. Shit. But if you bought a Lay Fiat in 2008 for just $3,109 a bottle, by 2011, it increased, had increased to $22,066 a bottle. Now, your stocks in Apple or Facebook or wherever you put your money can't do that. So I thought, shit, that's a hell of a lot better than investing in stock. So I thought I'd get Alexander on the show to tell us how we can all get very rich while we sit there and enjoy a glass of good red. And welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Well, yeah. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, so are you sitting there having a glass of wine right now? I'm, I'm not. I probably will do after after finish speaking to you. But, uh, yeah, not yeah. I, sh- I should be, eh? I should you be. should be. You definitely um, should be. Um, <laughs> now, when you invest in wines, do you actually get the wine or does it sit somewhere on a in a big cellar and it simply changes hands through a register. How does that work? Well, that's, that's a good question, Bob, because that is, um, you really sort of hit the, the nail on the head as to what has been very different for us here in America and to, to the UK. Um, in America, over here, everyone that has wines has their cellar, they fill their cellar up, and they intend to drink them, but often they become hoarders and realise they can't drink as much as they've collected. Yeah. And they look to sell it on, and it goes to auction, and that's how the market works over here in America. But back home in England, where I'm from, um, you've actually got a system where you can trade wines before taxes or duties are paid on them, whilst they're still in bond. Right. Um, which means you have a history of where the wine has been, because you then need to pay a VAT tax, which is 20% incidentally to the government when you take out a bond, so they need to know how much you paid for it. Right. So that, that's great, but, but it means you get a history where the wine's been, which makes for a better investment um, situation than over here where um, you've got no real proof where the wine has been, who's imported it, so on and so forth. So you, there's a larger risk to buying and selling wines in America. Uh, and thus, they tend to be slightly cheaper over here, but uh, it's, not, it's not the best place to actually, actually do it. I just wanted to quickly mention, you, it was a great introduction earlier, those, uh, those prices you quote are actually per case of 12 per bottles. Per case? So they okay. weren't, they, yeah, oh, that's good. not per bottle, that's per case. Okay. Do you have, um, to, do you have to buy... I mean, the market... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the market basically formed around nine litres. Right. Okay, so if you buy futures on Premier, you get nine litres allocated to you. Okay. And uh, that's, that's 12 75 centilitre bottles. Now, increasingly, um, there's more six-bottle cases in the market, but you actually, you actually, I mean, wine's actually valued by that sort of 10% more if they're in the original wooden carton, OWC. Mm-hmm. And so we would only trade in OWC wines. Um, but yeah, it, your question was about an exchange um, in UK. I mean, there is an exchange in England, but it's a merchant to merchant exchange. It's not uh, you have to be a, a registered merchant to trade on it, and that's because of the essentially because of the logistics involved in the commodity. You actually, you trade a contract and promise to deliver to a warehouse, and it, it takes weeks, sometimes a month, okay. six weeks to actually get that wine. So actually, having a live interface. Um, it, it's not the market's not quite there yet. 
Yeah, true. Um, but that actually has a lot, that's, a, that's got a lot of benefits to it as well, though, Bob, because then you haven't, I mean, over the last decade, we've seen traditional markets get ruined for average punters by all the all these computers that yeah. buy and sell everything. Yeah. You know, so everyday investors are outwitted by some computer program, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, well, all sort of day with, trading. That happens yeah. with stocks, too. Well, that's, that's what I mean, yeah. I was sort of talking about comparing to the stocks. Whereas with the wine, because it's a more sort of labour-intensive process where the wine has to be, you have to pay for freight for wine to be moved around and so on, um, you, you certainly can't day trade it, which, um, yeah, it's just a slower, a slower market, really. Now, moving wine is not good for wine, though, is it? Wine's much better, no. much safer if it's sort of sitting still lying down somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's still the process of moving the wine from from Bordeaux over to England. Um, you can you can buy and sell wine and store it in Bordeaux. There's warehouses there. Um, it's, England just has evolved as the as the hub of the fine wine market. Um, England was actually um, actually governed Bordeaux for 300 years in like the 12. 12 to 1400s around then sometime. They, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine married a, an English king. Yep. And uh, so there, there was a big uh, big connection right there. And Bordeaux obviously being a port, a port town and, and the Brits and, you know, were loving their boats and so on. Yeah. Um, built up a strong trade relationship with Bordeaux. Well, um, I noticed, so that's why. I've, I noticed in your brochure, which is excellent, by the way, I've got to say, that oh, good, thank you. All the wines you mention are French. So are good wines from California or Australia or New Zealand or Chile or wherever just as good an investment as the French ones? Or Yeah, I mean, my, my, my job is basically to do my utmost to make sure that my clients share a profit. And as soon as I, you know, that, that's the key thing. And, and the the five first growth border wines have the history of, of showing a profit. Right. Um, the pen, you know, Grange Penfolds is, is a great Australian wine. Um, it it can make money. There's Californian wines that can make money. Um, but there's nothing like the five first growth Bordeaux, which are the you know the Lafitte Rothschild. Yes. The Mouton, the Mouton Rothschild. Yes. And then there's the Chateau Latour, the Chateau Margaux, and the Chateau Aubryon. Yeah. And those those are the five the five premier premier crews, um, the first few Bordeaux, and uh, they're actually so important in the wine investment world that this merchant to merchant exchange I, I mentioned called LiveX, London International Vintage Exchange, yeah. has its own index purely based on those five wines. Wow, so they okay. take those five, yeah, they take those five wines over the last ten vintages and call it the Livex Fifty. So that's that's the second most um, important exchange, you know, index that they that they've created. It's, it's like a t- it's like ten years old, basically. It's nineteen ninety nine, you know, fourteen years old, fifteen years old. Um, that the uh, London Central Vintage Exchange has been around. But um, there's the Livex One Hundred, which is the top hundred wines, and there's yeah. Livex Fifty, which is those five wines over the last ten vintages. And it, it beat it, the first goes to beat everything hands down. Um, so I, I really can't see any any point in uh, in recommending anything else. Okay, so <laughs> some yeah. time ago, some time ago, right. I had I had a dozen bottles of fifty eight Grange Hermitage. 
great wine, and okay. it was valued, it was valued wow. at about $18,000 a bottle. And I thought, okay. this is great. So one day we decided that we'd actually drink one. And when they were open, most of the dozen bottles had gone off. So when you invest in wine, are you taking a chance that when you actually open it, it's going to be worthless? I mean, with a stock, it, you know, the car plant's not going to go off. But with wine, hey, it can, can't it? How does that well, happen? I'm sorry that you had that experience, Bob. That so was been, I. I was pissed You must have off. nightmares about that, right? I was pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you. So, so, well, again, so... Yeah, so the, the, the way the way I mean the wine that that you own as an investment could well eventually be be off. There's yeah. no proof that it won't be, but because we're trading in bond for taxes, or duties are paid on it. That liability and that risk is taken on by the person that decides to take it out of bond to consume it. Oh, I see. so as long as you're trading in bonds, you have the very highest. The very highest level of storage insurance in the world. I mean, I mean, of storage history in the world. Yeah. So it may well be off, but that's not something we're going to find out. We're going to sell it and let the person that feels rich enough to drink it discover that, <laughs> or not, or not discover it. You know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's. Um, <laughs> what makes? Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, yeah. What makes wine such a unique asset? I mean, what are the key benefits of it? I think as an asset class. Um, it's an asset that is bought by right, 80% of fine wine is bought by people who intend to consume it. Right. So you've, you've got a market driven by, uh, by essentially billionaires or very wealthy people um, that, that wish to drink this wine. So unlike gold, which is, um, I'm pretty sure I'm right, is pretty much 100% owned by investors. Right. Um, it can fluctuate a lot. So this is driven by the lifestyles of, of the wealthy. And you're playing a speculation, you're playing a wealth disparity play, basically. So that's one aspect, which is quite fundamental. Um, then you've got, you know, wine is tangible, so there's no inflationary, I mean, there's, there's no inflation concern with it. Right. Um, but again, sticking to, to, to the Bordeaux wines, and I guess there You'll gets to be wine. less and less of it every year, doesn't it? Sorry, say that again. There gets to be less and less of it. I mean, if you've got if well, you're investing exactly in that that's yeah exactly something. But, but before there, yeah, exactly. But I mean, but before that, you've actually got a finite supply to start off with. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the border regions are restricted from expanding their vineyard size, and much the same as you can't call a um, a sparkling wine champagne unless it's grown in, in the Champagne sure. region of France. Yeah. You've got a finite quantity produced. And then as um, dependent on the weather, and, and the, the quantity is actually to do with the acreage and the size allowed to go to the grape in. So um, you then have a quantity of that, of that production that is not calibre enough to be the first growth wine. So you get percentages of the crop that turn into the first growth. So you've got a finite quantity. Yeah. So People drink it. It depletes. And then it also matures. It improves until it turns to vinegar like your stuff. <laughs> so that, you need to get out of it before then, you know. Yeah, I know. Um, so, so, I mean, so my, my, my investors at the moment, we are, we're literally just focusing on, um, we're focusing on Lafitte Rothschild and Latour, Chateau Latour, 
um, on vintages between 2000 and 2000, like from the 2000s, um, on scores above 95 points. Right. And we're looking for the, the least expensive um, case on the market that has above 95 points okay. in those years. We're not looking at the, 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 the 90s or the 80s. That, that, that for me is too old now. We, we want, you want to be at the beginning of a wine's life so that you can sell it to an investor and a consumer. And if you want to hold it for 20 years, you're allowed to. Okay. Whereas if you buy something in the 80s, you know, you might be able to hold it for 20 years, but you might not, you know? Yeah. So when one thinks of wine, the UK doesn't rapidly undermine. So why is it the sort of epicenter of the wine market? Why, why is that? Well, it should do. It I mean, should, what, it should. What, what do the poms know about wine? You know, they, up until recently, they drank warm beer. What the hell do they know about wine? <laughs> well, it, it's this, this <laughs> relationship with Bordeaux that goes back um, for, for such a long while. And it's just, it's evolved. I mean, it was um, the, 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 the American market was a recent market to bloom for, for Bordeaux wines. And uh, that really took place in the 70s, 80s, 60s, maybe. Yeah. Um, before that, they weren't really into it. So whereas, whereas London has been trading Bordeaux for 800 years. Oh, okay. 900 years. All right. And so it's just got this old, ingrained um, connection. And you've also got the, the proximity to, to Bordeaux. Sure. Um, you don't really want um, a wine going around in a, in a jumbo jet three, four times around the world before it's drunk. No, you know, So you want to... You want to take, and it's also rained the whole time there. So you've got good humidity levels. Yeah, I understand. I know the, I know the room so, yeah, quite well. That's why I'm over here. <laughs> but, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the place I recommend, that we recommend storing, um, uh, you know, the, the wine is a place called Octavian Caution Cellars. And so once clients actually, you know, new clients come on board, they're right, yeah, we want to do it. Um, you know, they, they, they open, we, we help them open account in their own name at this this warehouse, so, um, so they become a client of the they become a client of the warehouse. There's 1.5 billion dollars of wine in this vault at the moment. It's called Octavian Caution Cellars. So yeah. how long how long do people usually hold wine for? Well, that, that, uh, yeah, I mean it, it depends. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, most of my clients don't really look to sell it um, because a lot of them. I use it as a, a sort of a wealth preservation asset, a lot of clients yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but then, then I've got clients that have been involved and maybe just put 50,000 in or 20,000 in and that's a big chunk of their portfolio and, you know, five years later they want to start seeing it, you know, they see that see it works. Sort of return or, on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, but I mean, I really, you, you can make money in, in 18 months. You know, because cause what happens is the market plateaus and then something happens and it jumps up. But I, I wouldn't want anyone as a customer that wasn't prepared to hold on to their wine for three to five years. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah that, it's, it's, it's a medium, medium hold to long hold asset, yeah. So I walk into West Garth Wine Investment Brokers and I say, I want to I invest in some wine. What amount of money are you? Is the minimum I can go in and invest, for example? Okay, so the minimum you can invest. I mean, you're looking at five, yeah, five ten thousand dollars. I mean, uh, oh, okay, you could, so it's not, it's not sell, yeah, and that, that's the twelve bottles. And you, you can go in less than that. You could, you know, if you were a bit anxious and wanted to 
see it work before you put that sum of money in. You, you can get a half case of Obreon for, for $3,000. Okay. That's going to show you a percentage return. You don't want to go too inexpensive because you have a, a cost per case yeah, for storage sure. and insurance, which is about $20 a year. It's not much. But if you're talking about $200 cases, yeah. then that's 10%. You've got, you've got to see a 10% profit before you cover your costs. Okay. Now, somebody's sitting here and saying, well, geez, last year I lost a bomb on the, um, on the stock market, so I might have a look at this wine investment. Where do they find you? www.westgarthwines.com. So that's W-E-S-T-G-A-R-T-H wines.com. So that's westgarthwine.com. Speak to Alexander. He's a great guy. You'll know him as soon as... Wines with an S. Yeah, Westgarth Wines with an S. Just plug it again. Westgarth Wines with an S. Okay. And you'll know him as soon as as you meet him because he's the tallest guy on the planet. And uh, he's, but he's a really good bloke, and I can recommend you talking to him, Alexander. Thanks for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. It's been a, it's been an utter pleasure, and I'm so sorry to hear your story about your about your vinegar you drank. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'm, remember, I'm sorry. <laughs> remember, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is the place for interviews with the leaders and shakers in American business, entertainment, and sports. Alexander, I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future at Metal. Thanks a lot, Bob. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking no bullshit business show which comes to you each week from my hometown of Los Angeles and the studio which is in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is the segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners all around the world. It's incredible, despite the different cultures, 
all of the emails are applicable to anybody, not only in small business, but really in any business, anywhere on the planet uh, when I go and give speeches, um, you know, whether it be in Moscow or in London or in Sydney or in Los Angeles or Vegas. The same questions afterwards are asked and uh, sometimes they're asked in Russian and sometimes they're asked in Greek, but they're the same questions. So whatever answers I give people in this segment really apply to anybody in business anywhere on the planet. My first email today is from Mike Russell from Salem in Oregon. I've never been there. I heard it's good. Mike writes, Dear Bob, thank you for a great show. I listen every week and I particularly enjoy your interviews. You always seem to have fun with your guests. Now, it's very difficult to attract new customers continually and it seems that most of my time seems to be spent on marketing and not on my business. Do you have any suggestions to make this role easier and less time-consuming? Dear Mike, well, thanks very much for your email. I think you've got life kind of screwed up a bit in that um, how do you find more time to spend on your business and not on marketing? You know what? Marketing is your business. Marketing to attract people through the doors and then getting sales by selling them something and then ideally upselling them and having them leave thrilled so they'll not only come back but they'll tell other people is the critical part of your business. Because if you don't sell somebody something, you don't need the rest of your business. If you don't sell somebody something, you don't have to manufacture anything. You don't have to hire an accountant because you've got nothing to count. So business is marketing and sales. That is is the most important thing. So you do need to dedicate or somebody in your organization needs to dedicate a great deal of time to marketing and sales. Now, if you can continually get the same customers coming back over and over again, and then they're getting their friends to come back over and over again, and then they tell their friends, etc., business becomes so much easier. I saw an exercise just recently where and I can't remember the exact numbers, but if a person opens a store, for example, they have five people come in once a week and those five people each tell a friend and they start coming in five times a week. I think in three years, they've got half a million people coming into their shop a week. The reason that businesses struggle is because people don't come back and people don't tell other people and those other people obviously don't turn up and they don't tell anybody but if you can get people telling people and coming back and then them telling people and coming back you have got a monster business very quickly now it's to be able to get that to happen you need to put in a hard yard the hard yards and you need to create a selling and marketing strategy that really knocks somebody's socks off Everybody socks off. It doesn't just happen. It is bloody hard work. And these days, you know, people, I know people who have a business, they have a shop or whatever, and people come in and they say, hi, how are you? Can I help you? Um, and then, you know, have a nice day. And they think that's good customer service. That is not what customer service is about. That's just 
crap on top of the cake means nothing. To get people to come back, you need to have a marketing and a sales strategy that is quite that creative and really well thought out. Just doing the standard stock, being nice to people stuff does not work. You will go broke. And, you know, it's logical when you think about it that getting people in the door and then selling them stuff is the most important part of your business. It's more important than any other element. And one problem is that most small business owners simply fail to recognise the difficulty involved in successful marketing. They don't realise how much work it's going to take to market their business and get their message out there. Too many small businesses think that if they have a business, have a website, run a few ads, that customers will just come and then come back and come back. That's rubbish. It's just absolute bloody rubbish. Marketing takes a lot of strategy, a lot of creativity, a lot of thought, and a lot of bloody hard work. Mike, I hope that helps answer your question. As we do for everyone whose emails read on the air, tomorrow we'll send you a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is my recent, most recent best-selling book. And, mate, read it carefully because I think that you've got a pretty weird idea of the importance of various elements of your business. My second email today comes from Lana Grimm of West Palm Beach, Florida. Lana writes, Dear Bob, thanks for a great show. I've learned a lot that's helped me with my business. My question is probably one that many others have asked, but how can I get all of my employees to really care about the business, try to prove their productivity and give it their all? Some work harder than others, but I feel that all of them could give more. Well, Lana, that is a very common question, and uh, I always give the same answer. I know a lot of people have got different answers to this, but and I believe the key is to pay everybody a base salary. That's not minimum, but a set salary, and then award salary increases, bonuses, and then give promotions based totally on performance. Put everybody on incentives. The most successful businesses are those with high-performing employees and the biggest single impediment to high performance is the lack of accountability for their results. All employees should have objective, quantifiable goals which define the results they are expected to achieve. You know, if you don't have a goal, you won't, you won't achieve it. Then give each of them evaluations of their job, set against accomplishing those goals in a formal written evaluation process. You know, I've got no doubt, Lana, that if you do that, you'll find that personal initiative and productivity will increase significantly. The other thing that I think is important, if you've got somebody in the business that is a dead weight or is negative, kick their ass out of there. You know, you can't change negative people. They're called dream takers. 
They're bloody miserable. They wake up in the morning miserable. They end the day miserably. And they fuck up everybody's life in between. Do not put up with dream takers. Get rid of them. So if you've got anybody in your company that is a dream taker or is negative, kick them out because they're like a cancer and they spread through the company. I feel fairly strongly about that, as you can probably gather. Lana, I hope that's a help to you. Tomorrow, as I said, we'll send you out a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, and I'm sure that if you read it, it will help you. My third email today is from Ellen Sinclair from Glebe, a suburb of Sydney in Australia. That's not far from, really far from where I live. It's on the water in Sydney. We have a lot of listeners in Australia, and I think it's about um, 10.45 or something there. But it's tomorrow, not today. Dear Bob, thank you for an excellent show. It's great to see an Aussie doing so well in the US. I have seen you speak at events in Australia several times. The first time was with John McGrath, and you were both really terrific. For those of you who are listening who don't know who John McGrath is, he is a real estate person in Australia who sells more real estate than just about anybody else in the world. I think he's up in the billion dollars a year, something like that. Brilliant he is. Now, Bob, you talk on the show a lot about the need to do research irrespective of whether you're a big company or a small company. That sounds really good, but research is expensive and all of the small business people that I know cannot afford it. So, how do you do research when you don't have a lot of money? Alan, that's a bloody good question. But there are ways you can do research yourself without spending a lot of money. You can take advantage of free websites and free or low-cost tools, such as online polls, simply talking to people, observing what they do. Yeah, you know, This might not give you as detailed a uh, report as the professional market researchers churn out, but it be, can be good enough to really help you hone your marketing strategy. You know, I've worked with companies, and one comes to mind in particular, where the market research was so bloody complicated that it distracts you from the real simple messages that are the most effective communication tools. In the same organisation, we did very simple talk-to-people type research, and that was much much bigger advantage to us with, with marketing and with advertising than the 100-page complicated bullshit reports that are provided to you by, by research companies to justify their fee. Now, the first step is to build a customer database so that you can track purchase history and their preferences. Now, your point-of-sale system or your customer service management software, that, that can provide you with all the tools that you need. You need to capture their email address, their home address or their zip code. And, you know, you can, uh, you can access this information by offering discounts or the opportunity to win a prize. Just this simple information will give you a very good idea, for example, of your catchment area. This will certainly assist you with selecting the right advertising and promotional vehicles. So now you know who your customers are and where they are. The next step is to find out what it is that they want. Now, you can use services such as Constant Contact or SurveyMonkey or Zoomerang to provide free or low-cost surveys 
or to distribute via email. You can also hand out customer comment cards at your retail business. Again, you can incentivate people by offering coupons or a discount. You can ask really simple open-ended questions about what your customers want and what they need. Another way to get a guide as to how you're performing is to ask customers on a scale of 1 to 10 how likely they are to refer a friend or a colleague to your business. People who give you a 9 or a 10, they're advocates. They're the ones that you need to work on, you need to promote to, you need to look after because they're the ones that are going to give you great word of mouth. So focus on those that will assist you. Anybody that gives you below 6 are not going to give you good word of mouth. In fact, they're probably going to complain about something, anything. So one of the primary keys to having a successful business is to retain your primary customers and create ways where they can assist you to bring in their friends. Social media is another great way to conduct media market research amongst those who are your advocates. You can get them involved by asking them what additional products they would like, how they can help you with a specific promotion, and any other question that will get them involved and give them an affinity with the business. Now, you can keep these advocates feeling special by offering special discount prices, a membership, perhaps get some special advice or training, or some other incentive to entice them to support you. Thanks, Alan. I'll send you a copy of Marketing Magic. That's a book I wrote a few years ago with Brian Tracy, Jay Conrad, Levinson and Robert Bly, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it. If you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please, pretty please, tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. Don't forget, if you have a particular guest you'd like me to interview or a particular topic you'd like me to address, email me, bob at bobpritchard.com. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011. It's a heap of fun doing it each week and I'll be with you at the same time next week, no matter where you are in the world, to address the critical issues that affect small business everywhere. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit, Tell It The Way It Is business show for entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a great week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.